Hello, and welcome to this episode of the ASIN Podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas James, and this month I travel to Loughborough University to talk with Marco Antonsich and Michael Skay about everyday nationalism. Some of you might recognize Loughborough as the birthplace of Michael Billig's famous concept of banal nationalism, which refers to the routinization of national symbols in everyday life and the radical assertion that nationalism is the endemic, ideological condition of modernity. However, in our discussion, we go about 23 years beyond Billig, and we discuss the practices of national identity in everyday settings and the role of individual agency. Marco Antonsic is a senior lecturer in human geography. You can follow him on Twitter at Marco underscore Antonsic, and Michael Skay is a lecturer in communication and media studies. Both of them are at Loughborough University. They recently released an excellent edited volume titled Everyday Nationhood, Theorizing Culture, Identity, and Belonging After Banal Nationalism. So I want to welcome you both to the ASIN podcast. Your works broadly intersect uh, on the everyday lived experience of nations and nationalism. And so I guess to start this discussion, could you both um, talk about your works in general? Yeah, I can start. My name is Marco Antonsic. Um, well, my entry point to, to, to nationalism studies is very specific. I mean, in, I'm interested in the notion of everyday, and more specifically, I'm interested in how uh, the nation matters to a very specific uh, portion of the population, which is mainly, I would call it, the children of migrants, sometimes also called the second generation. And I find this particularly interesting because this is where you can see there is a potential for transforming uh, the notion of the nation. Uh, throughout my research, I'm trying to understand how the demographic change impacts on the very idea of Italy. Italy is my case study, but obviously other scholars can do it in, every, in other contexts. And so if you see that the population changes, and nowadays you have a plurality of cultures, plurality of religion, plurality of races, of ethnicities, etc., to what extent the nation can still be the common glue that brings these people together, and how all this plurality impact on the very meanings of the nation? These are questions which I think are somehow uh, bypassed by a lot of literature that usually, when engaged with diversity, they tend to bypass the nation and they go at other scales, they are looking at other scales either the transnational or the very local, the urban. And because the nation is still perceived as a site of exclusion. And with my research, I'm trying to open up and see, by looking at these voices, how can they potentially open up the meaning of nation. OK, my name is Michael Skay. Um, I take a slightly different perspective. So I'm, I guess I'm interested in two main questions, is why do national forms of identification and organization matter? and who do they matter to? And I've argued in relation to the first question that we need to think about the ways in which these national frameworks are implicated in people's everyday lives, they give them common reference points, they give them a sense of familiarity, um, there are spatial and temporal regularities that give them predictability in their lives. But of course, these national frameworks don't matter to everyone in the same way. So I've particularly focused on a group that I've called the ethnic majority 
And those are people who take their sense of belonging to the nation for granted. So we're kind of dancing around um, an idea of banal nationalism here. So, so could you both describe what that is and how do everyday representations of nationhood affect identity for different people? Yeah, I mean, because it seems they are taking Michael and I, we're adopting two different perspectives, we're looking into different things, but actually we adopt the same framework, so we are looking into what broadly we can call it the everyday, and sometimes people also call it banal, but I think for me they are different, maybe I would try to say why they are different later on, but it's our own approach, we obviously it's not our, only our approach. Yes, recently we published the book Everyday Nationhood, but um, it's very shared by also other scholars. And what we are trying to do here is something that is somehow different from the traditional approach in nationalism studies, in which was more of a sort of top-down, looking at the macro institutional structures of the nation. In our cases, we are very much looking into the practices of the everyday people, what in the daily interactions. And in order to differentiate the, ban the banal from the everyday, for me, the banal in the very a uh, specific sense that Billy gives to, uh, meaning to this notion, the banal makes the nation to be a sort of omnipresence, is a constant presence as a sort of background in the lives of the people. For me, the everyday actually brings forward the agency of the people, which is somehow overlooked in the notion of banal nationalism. And it's the same, Michael shared the same, so we are on the same um, on the same boat in this sense. So we're trying to bring forward the agency of the people when the people make the nation matters into their own interaction and how and when and where, particularly coming from geography, which spaces are the most uh, relevant when we talk about this everyday nationhood. And I think Billig assumes that you know nationalism might be equally important to everyone, whereas for some groups their sense of identity, their sense of who they are, is bound up very strongly with the nation at particular times, whereas for other groups it, it doesn't matter to them that much at all. So I think that we need to think about differences both within particular nations and also uh, across uh, national contexts as well. So in the current era of political change and the polarization and radicalization of politics, what is so everyday about everyday nationalism? All right, this is a difficult one. Can I pass it to him first? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, there's, there's a great, um, in the book that uh, Marco mentioned, Everyday Nationhood, there's, there's a great um, chapter by uh, Craig Calhoun. And, he, in, and, and one of the things he says is that in order to understand these hot, violent outbursts of nationalism, we need to understand nationalism as a whole, including the links between the everyday and the hot. So the people that are making, you know, the populists, the radicals, making the claims about, you know, taking their country back, um, it only makes sense within a wider world where national frameworks are largely taken for granted. Because if those national frameworks weren't taken for granted, making the claim we want our country back doesn't make any sense. So there are real connections between the hot, the violent, the populist, and also the everyday. So we need to understand both in common. Yes, I agree. Well, particularly, particularly in the past, in the literature, there was the sense that actually the hot and the so-called cold 
were two binaries, two opposite. But actually, more recent research has shown actually how there is a continuum between these two. And what Michael said before actually speaks very well. The possibility of the hot is very much possible because there is this existence of a more taken for granted banal called forms of nationalism. But again, it's important to think not the two as two opposite, but as a continuum. And my flux at a certain point in time, as we are seeing now today. Thinking about the dynamics of this continuum, what, what are its implications in an ever-globalizing world, and what draws us to specific representations of the nation at specific times? That is a very tough question to, to answer. I mean, I, I guess, I mean, you need to think about, you know, broader socio and economic changes that are happening at the current time. So I think, you know, people are, a lot of people, you know, in Western contexts are struggling. There are, you know, economic problems, job losses. They feel a sense of insecurity. And one of the ways they can articulate that insecurity, that fear, that discomfort that they're experiencing is through the nation. Um, so I think, you know, you can look at broader trends that are happening in the world. Inequalities are going up. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. And so how people respond, one of the ways they take, try and take control of their lives is through the nation. And they try and argue, you know, this is our country, we should be in control. And they focus on particular groups. But I think, you know, these, these, um, these processes work differently in, in different countries. But we also need to adopt a macro perspective as well to look at wider social and, and economic changes. Yeah, I agree on the point. And by the way, I mean, this notion of ontological security that Michael also uses in his previous book, I mean, it's very important to understand how the nation still uh, wor works as a sort of cocoon, uh, as, a sort of, uh, as a sort of nest around which people can still gather and find a sort of... Uh, uh, but uh, as I, uh, I, I, I take an issue with that because I do think there is too much emphasis. I understand, obviously, what is going on right now in the world, but I think we should look more in perspective. I'm not sure whether this uh, will emerge later in the conversation, but there is too much emphasis on the here and now mm -hmm. and all this fuss about the neo-nationalism, the white nationalism, etc., which I think, um, yeah, it obviously is important. We need the research to understand why this happened, but I think we lose sight of a more long-term understanding, particularly in the present condition of the demographic change. I always mention by 2060, about 30% of the population living in Europe would at least have one foreign-born parent. So we need to reflect on that, on that transformation. What does it tell us about the future of the nation, the relevance of the nation, how much will matter and for whom the nation in the near future. And what we see now is potentially also a reaction to this demographic transformation. Uh, but again, I think we also need to liberate the nation, rescue the nation for this sort of appropriation in exclusivist terms by a specific uh, group, the majority group of the nation. Yeah, I think, that, I mean, there is a problem when, when nationalism and, and ideas around nation only become tied to Trump or Brexit or, or, you know, populist parties, wherever they may be. That's, you know, that that's a small, um, you know, part of, of, of the overall phenomenon. And there's a danger in just associating nationalism with these groups. We need to, to look at it in a much broader um, way. So <clears throat> in your book, you have, you have a chapter from Bart Bonikowski on yeah. 
I think it's uh, French and German nationalism and, and what the different uh, thought communities are who make up those nations. How do people construe the nation differently while being somehow part of a greater whole? Yeah, I mean, Bart's talking, I mean, he uses the term cultural repertoires and he's looking at the ways in which across German society there are particular attitudes towards certain social issues. It might be, I don't know, religion or abortion. And he notices that on the, on the macro level, there are noticeable differences between Germany, France. I mean, he's done some work in America as well that's quite interesting. And it just shows you that there are broader um, themes and perspectives that you can see in relation to particular countries. Obviously, within France, there are huge differences between particular social groups on the basis of class and ethnicity, but he's also making the point that there are differences through you know, historical developments of political institutions, social institutions, maybe language, that also show us that there are noteworthy differences between particular nations. And I think what we try to do with the book is include chapters from people who are offering different perspectives. So Bart is using um, uh, large-scale um, survey data. We also have people that are doing ethnographies, looking at media representations, trying to get a sense of the different ways in which nationalism and national identity becomes meaningful in the lives of different people. Yeah, and particularly focusing indeed on the everyday because it's the focus of the book, but also, you know, when you think about how the nation matters, right? Why, why is it different? I mean, France and UK or in Italy, etc. right? It's still the power of the nation. Whoever gets incorporated into the nation, let's assume there is a migrant coming from ex country. That ex country, well, if you live in Germany, uh, let's say a Turk in Germany or a Turk in Italy or a Turk in UK, we still have some of the commonality, religion, etc., ways of doing, but still we'll take something from the place where it is. It is not just the legal, the, sorry, the, the, the legal local place, but that sense of ways of, of um, yeah, more on the, na on the national level, some attitudes, some practices, some ways of doing, that's very specific to, to the nation where it belongs to. It's still a Turk, but it's going to be a Turk in Germany. It's very different from Turk in Italy. It's very different from the Turk in Israel. So it's still speaking back to the power of the nation. It's something you can only grasp if you look at the everyday. That's why it's so important the everyday, because it allows also to detect to de detect the power of the nation, how the nation operates in your own daily interaction. So, Some might argue that the nation is experienced as a process or a continual construction of opinions or beliefs that give us frames of thinking and acting, um, and, and that these are routinized in everyday life. So, so my question is, what causes changes in, in these um, belief systems? Very good question. I mean, this is also part of the question that I have for my research, because I'm, I'm taking the notion of the mainstream, right? And if I may, we are just uh, speaking from Loughborough University, and where we had recently organized a conference, the Loughborough University Nationalism Network has just organized a conference on the theories and methods of, of nationalism. One of the questions that was here during, during, the, during the, the plenary was when does, uh, can't remember, when does the extraordinary, how can we detect 
detect the difference between the extraordinary and the ordinary, the banal. And I think it's very important. It speaks back to the notion of the mainstream. What is the mainstream? The mainstream is, is something that is taken for granted, that people don't notice, that people accept. It's normal. Right? Like if I can make the example of a black face playing for the national team, sport, football, the classic example of Balotelli, you still have uh, in the stadiums people that say that they are not black Italians. So it's still extraordinary, a black face, a black body playing for the national team. And it's the question. I mean, we don't have an answer. We, we just can only say that it's, it's relevant to understand when something which is extraordinary stops being extraordinary and becomes normal. We don't know, but we know that it's important to study the mechanism, the dynamics, the powers, dynamics involved in this process of making the extraordinary becomes banal, ordinary. I think also, I mean, thinking about you know, the broader macro level changes that are happening, you know, have happened over the last 50, 60 years. I mean, globalization has posed challenges to already existing orders, including the nation. So I think, you know, the movement of people, you can think about the movement of ideas, the movement of products, uh, media representations, they all pose challenges to existing ways of, of being in the world, to organizing the world, whether that be religion, whether that be gender relations, whether that be the nation. So I think, you know, I think scholars of globalization have pointed to the ways in which, you know, those processes, those macro processes can offer challenges to, to the national. But that doesn't mean that nations don't adapt. And that doesn't mean that nations are simply going to be swept away. Building on that, I'm going to throw out a big question. Um, when and how do nations matter? And importantly, how does this relate to changing demographics and territoriality? Well, there's obviously, I don't think there's a, there's a straight answer. When, I mean, first, we should assume that nations do not always matter. <laughs> I think it's also important to ask the question when nations do not matter, because sometimes they don't matter. We might go by without the presence of the nation. So this is obviously something that we need also to consider. But when the nation does matter, then obviously it's a point of ethnographical investigation, is a source of a very detailed, fine-grained, um, context-dependent uh, kind of studies. Um, I don't think it's possible to generalize, but I think what is important, and something also Michael does in, in his own studies, is to understand that when the nation matters for some people, might not matter for other people. Let me make you an example that comes from my own research. I study the new Italians, the so-called new Italians, so people that somehow make a claim of belonging to Italy uh, but have some foreign background. It can be first, but most, more likely, usually is the second generation. So that. Um, and there is an interesting moment. There is a moment in which um, uh, Christmas comes and everybody goes on holiday or somehow do the kind of classic practices when Christmas comes, etc. And then you have one of the respondents, they say, right, but I cannot participate into that. Uh, 
maybe because of religion, maybe because of class issues, there is not enough money to go on holiday, etc. And so you have this point of a break. So this sort of synchronicity, this sort of choreography, that everybody does the same thing at a certain moment in time, and so they bring the nation together, is not, it's not possible for some other people. So it's in, in, interesting to understand the sort of uh, short circuit in this sort of what Tim Edensor called the um, social spatial um, choreographies or temporalities. And it's important to understand that moment because it tells something about what kind of nation we are um, witnessing here. I think it's also you know, worth noting that the, the nation comes to matter quite often when people feel a sense of threat or insecurity to their own position or status within the nation. Um, but also, conversely, I think it matters when people feel comfortable as well, when they're just getting on with their lives, you know, they're sharing the same information about you know, institutional hurdles they have to tackle, media representations they've seen, everything's familiar, everything's predictable, they're just getting on with their lives. And the the nation is one aspect that gives them a, a longer-term sense of, you know, predictability and comfort over time. Okay, so, so one final question relating to this, which is sort of peripheral to it. What are the implications of multiculturalism on everyday nationalism? Well, I should be the one to first. <laughs> yes, it's true, because this is part of my own research. I'm trying to understand in this. Um, um, it, it depends. I think we, we also need to differentiate what we mean by multicultural. So, if by multicultural it means a fact, so the fact that there is obviously a demographic change, so it's a factual uh, change into the, the composition of the population, or if by multicultural we understand as a normative project associated with state policies that actually try to preserve the diversity of the cultures that compose the nation. I'm not so much into uh, the second one. This actually is the work of a colleague, Professor Tariq Modud from Bristol University. I think it's the most um, fruitful attempt of trying to combine uh, multiculturalism and nationalism in a normative perspective by basically incorporating the different histories of the uh, uh, minority communities into a whole embracing new narrative about the nation. Coming from my perspective, I'm more interested, I think, is a, as a multicultural, as a fact, as a fact that the population is different. And so how does it impact that? It's still an open question. We don't know how the different understanding of nation by people that have a foreign background is going to impact on, on, on that sense of of the nation. But what is important here is to understand that it cannot be articulated around the singular. The nation is indeed a plurality. It has to be accepted as a plurality. It's a contested matter. It should be, it's perfectly fine if it's a contested matter. We should not strive for one meaning. That's the nation, period. But it's actually in the process of engaging with a plurality of meaning that we can have a sense of commonness. Yes, we are all here. We have different ideas of what the nation should be. But we are all having the same conversation around the same topic. So this is something that really matters. I, I think it also uh, depends on, on how you define multiculturalism. I mean, in the literature, particularly in relation to the United States and Britain and Western Europe, multiculturalism is about ethnicity. But if you look at you know, Britain, for example, as the context that I'm most familiar with, 
multiculturalism, you could talk about it in terms of the different countries that make up Britain, you can talk about it in terms of regions, you can talk about it in terms of gender, you can talk about it in terms of age differences, there are cultural differences between the young and the old, there's cultural differences between the middle class and the working class. So there's, I think there's too much emphasis on ethnicity when it comes to difference. There are profound differences in the States, in Britain, around the world, in relation to class. But they tend not to be talked about as much. So it depends how you define multiculturalism, really. Well, unfortunately, our time is running a, a little bit low. So before we end it, I always like to ask if you have any uh, advice for younger scholars. Well, if I may, we just heard, sorry, <laughs> yeah, because we are all laughing because there is a reason why, because we are all uh, listening to the keynote by Professor John Brulee, and uh, with all the respect of John, Professor John Brulee, his own final word was like, that, yes, we are witnessing the end of nationalism studies uh, for, for a series of reasons. We're not going to go into this reason. Uh, we should say that actually the conference we just organized show a, a, a very a great interest among young people for this particular conference, if I may, we just received 88 uh, submissions of abstracts. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a kind, there is a lot of interest around nationalism studies. It just depends what kind of nations we are engaging with. And I think there is more and more interest uh, into the more, let's say, sociological aspect of the nation, more this kind of everyday aspect of the nation. Yes, this is very popular among the young people. So I do see a great future, particularly down this road, more than maybe the classic questions have been asked about what is the nation and when is the nation. And so it's now more how the nation, which is taking more and more um, interest around uh, young scholarship. I think also into, in order to study um, nationalism, which is obviously a very complex topic, I, you know, I'd encourage people to try and take insights from a range of disciplines. So I think you know, insights from sociology, communication and media, geography, psychology, there's lots of interesting work going on. And I think you know, the way that we can advance our understanding of this topic and move it beyond just kind of popular understandings which are about you know, violence and xenophobia is to actually draw on uh, as wide a range of literature and methods as possible. All right, so I'd like to thank you both for uh, coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It was a wonderful discussion we just had on everyday nationalism at the Loughborough University Nationalism Network. You can find more about them at lborough.ac.uk slash research slash L-U-N-N. And don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at Nicholas D. James, and you can follow the ASIN at ASIN Events. It was great having you all, and I hope you all tune in next time to the ASIN Podcast.